You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. The New York Times reports that the U.S. has staged malware in Russia's power grid, presumably as deterrence against Russian cyber attacks against the U.S. South America has largely recovered from a large-scale power outage that seems so far to have been accidental. An EU report claims that Russian information operations against the EU are increasing. Twitter takes down more inauthentic sites. What to make of claims of weaponization of artificial intelligence? And the target outage over the weekend seems to have been caused by glitches, not hacking. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, June 17, 2019. The New York Times says, in a largely anonymously sourced piece, that the U.S. has staged implants in the Russian electrical grid to enable the U.S. to impose costs on widely expected Russian misbehavior during the 2020 elections. This would be battle space preparation as opposed to an attack. It's worth noting here that the article itself is much clearer on this than is the headline that accompanied it, which said, U.S. escalates online attacks on Russia's power grid. The operation would appear to be a deterrent move intended to dissuade Russia from cyber attacks and influence operations against the U.S., No one in the U.S. government has had anything to say publicly, and the sources the Times cites in the article are former and current officials. That sources on the alleged staging itself. Plenty of observers have been willing to comment on the record. Precedent for active cyber operations may be seen in U.S. response to Russian election influence operations in 2018. Lawfare had a useful summary of presumed cyber command action against the Internet Research Agency, which President Trump more or less confirmed in a Fox interview back in May. Others seem similarities to the allegedly planned but apparently never executed Nitro-Zeus operation prepared during the previous administration against Iran, which is said to have been a comprehensive takedown of Iran's infrastructure in the event Iran's nuclear program brought that country and the U.S. into open warfare. A report of U.S. staging in Russian power infrastructure comes shortly after Dragos report signs that Xenotime, the activity group responsible for the Trisis, also called Triton, malware, used against a petrochemical facility in the Middle East, had been seen in the North American power grid. 
This activity appeared to be reconnaissance. FireEye, which discussed renewed Triton activity in April, has attributed the campaign to the Russian government, specifically to the Central Scientific Research Institute of Chemistry and Mechanics. If the New York Times has its story right, the operation it reports would seem to be deterrence. For deterrence to work, the threatened retaliation must be credible, and the adversary must know about it. If that's the point of any background discussions with the New York Times, then mission accomplished. And if this is deterrence, it's worth noting that there's another similarity with classic Cold War nuclear deterrence. The strategy seems to represent a predominantly counter-value approach. Counter-value deterrence holds something at risk the adversary values, but which need have no direct military significance. Counter-force strategies, on the other hand, threaten reprisal against military targets. The deterrence of mutually assured destruction during the Cold War, which held cities at risk, was an example of counter-value strategy. It's also worth noting that an attack on electrical power distribution anywhere harms civilian targets at least as much as it does military ones. For an object lesson in what a large-scale temporary grid failure looks like, see the weekend's outage in South America. Argentina and Uruguay were most heavily affected, with effects also felt in Brazil, Chile, and Paraguay. All have, for the most part, recovered. The outages do not appear to be the result of a cyber attack, but some observers have interpreted comments in Argentina's government that such an attack hasn't been ruled out as evidence of suspicion and not the normal caution one would exercise in responding to a question about an investigation that's still in its early stages. As far as is known so far, the power failures seem to be accidents of the kind that Argentina's energy minister says happen regularly. They're remarkable for their extent, but not necessarily for their cause. Last week, attention was drawn to Facebook's policies toward the removal of deepfake videos. They had been criticized for not removing a modified video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that was unflattering, and in response, someone posted a deepfake video featuring Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. CyberWire's Tamika Smith explores this new era of information warfare. When you think weaponized artificial intelligence, you may remember the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. In this specific scene, one of the astronauts, Dave, is trying to get the machine to let him onto the spacecraft to thwart the machine's master plan. Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. No spoiler alert here. We all know that Dr. David Bowman survives, but the rest of the Discovery One crew aren't so lucky. We are far from this 60s version of this physical machine versus man battle, but experts say the weaponization of AI is leading the way for a new era of information warfare. Here to talk more about this is Britt Paris. She's a researcher at Data and Society. It's a research institute focused on social and cultural issues that come from data-centric technology development. Hi, Britt. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks for having me. You've written extensively about this topic, and most recently you co-wrote an article on Slate entitled, Beware the Cheap Fakes. Deep fakes are doubling, but they don't have to be high-tech to be damaging. This was directly related to the AI-generated videos of Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Let's start with the technological terms here. What's the difference between a deep fake and a cheap fake? 
So deep fakes are artificial intelligence generated videos of any sort. And cheap fakes are the types of uh, manipulated videos that have been around forever. They increasingly rely on free software that allows, you know, very easy manipulation of videos through really conventional editing techniques, techniques like speeding up content, slowing it down, as we saw in the Pelosi video, as well as recontextualizing existing footage from previous events. I must say, when I watched the video, it was very difficult to tell the difference if it was real or fake. What's the technology that's driving the creation of this type of content? So with the Mark Zuckerberg example in particular, it was produced by an advertising company named Canny. And Canny produced video with help of artists in this proprietary artificial intelligence generated video dialogue replacement model that allowed them to take video of Zuckerberg testifying, I believe it was April of 2018, to take the voice that they had recorded and sort of insert it into the video of Zuckerberg testifying to to Congress last year. With the spread of this new technology, how do we detect what's real and what's fake? There are a few different things. So with the Zuckerberg example, primarily looking at, you know, voice replacement technology. And so you can hear some sort of buzzes and clips where they're going in and changing the voice. But, you know, whenever it's just sort of a face that is transmogrified onto an existing video, you can look for things like artifacting or sort of pixelation or blurring around where the face is inserted into the video. You can look at whether or not the eyes blink because, you know, if you think about it, training data is taken from images where people's eyes are generally open. And a lot of these videos that are produced through artificial intelligence, the eyes won't blink because, you know, the training data doesn't blink. Generally, changing color in the faces of people, you know, when they're filmed live on video, and that doesn't happen whenever the video is made with artificial intelligence or made from training data through artificial intelligence methods. Based on what I've seen with the case with Mark Zuckerberg and Speaker Nancy Pelosi, it doesn't seem to me that social media companies, you know, including Facebook and Twitter, etc., they don't seem like they have a set strategy to deal with this. I know. (laughs) That's the troubling issue for a lot of people. Social media really rewards content that is novel, inflammatory, that shows people doing sort of outrageous things, it rewards that type of content with, you know, large followings or sort of it allows it to reach large scales. Because, you know, really what these social media companies are looking for are engagement, clicks, eyeballs, because, you know, that's what they use to drive their advertising models. But based on the amount of people that they reach every day, there has to be some moral obligation. And this is the issue, right? People are trying to press these social media companies for accountability, especially given, you know, the number of debacles that these social media companies have been responsible for producing and fomenting. You know, we can think about examples of WhatsApp uh, that is owned by Facebook in Myanmar and India and in Brazil that have led to very negative consequences, things from inciting violence and even murder to throwing the elections to a far-right candidate in Brazil. So people are calling upon, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, WhatsApp, etc., in their role inciting this type of uh, activity.
Thank you so much for joining the program, Britt, and offering your insight into this topic. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Britt Paris is a researcher at Data and Society. It's a research institute focused on social and cultural issues that come from data-centric technology development. That was the CyberWire's Tamika Smith reporting. By the way, I may have had as my original error sound effect on my original Macintosh SE30, HAL 9000 saying, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. The European Commission has produced a report accusing Russia's government of an extensive social media effort to influence EU election results. The report concludes that by some indices, Russian disinformation campaigns have more than doubled since 2018 and that their goal remains the same, undermining the legitimacy of European democracies, including, of course, that of the European Union as a whole. Twitter took down some 5,000 inauthentic accounts late last week. Most of them were being run out of Iran, although a small fraction were operated from Russia or by people interested in Venezuela's crisis and the Catalan independence movement in Spain. Target suffered a widespread point-of-sale disruption over the weekend. The retailer says it recovered yesterday and that the incident was an accident, not the result of a cyber attack or a data breach. And finally, Bravo Bitdefender. The company has released a GandCrab ransomware decryptor. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, it's great to have you back. Hi, Dave. We got a story from Ars Technica. This has been making the rounds. Uh, a, a big uh, GDPR fine. Mm-hmm. This is Spanish Soccer League's app caught eavesdropping on users in anti-piracy push. Right. Now, before we dig into this story, uh, I have a story to share. Okay. When I was not long out of college, so this would have been back in the early 90s, I suppose, 
Uh, I had a friend whose job was going around to restaurants and writing down all of the music that the restaurant was playing hmm. and reporting that back to the music licensing organizations, ASCAP, ASCAP and BMI. Right. Yeah. And because uh, at the time, and I believe still today, if you were a restaurant playing music in your establishment, right. you had to have a license with ASCAP, ASCAP or BMI or, BMI or yep. both or whatever. And Same with so, radio stations. So this friend's job was to go around and basically find restaurants that weren't paying up their licensing fee right. and it, reporting it, back. Or violation. And they would get a, a strongly worded letter from ASCAP or BMI basically saying, you know, you can pay us now or you can pay us later. And if right. you pay us now, it'll be a lot less money. Yes. I tell that story because it kind of leads into this story, which is sort of an automated version of that. Right. It's an automated version of uh, from La Liga. Yeah. It's Spain's top professional soccer league. Okay. And uh, they have now been slapped with a, a 250,000 euro fine for violating user privacy because they're using a feature kind of like Shazam that listens to music. Right. And they're using it to identify pirated copies of their soccer games. Mm. So somebody who doesn't have the rights to play these games in a public place, La Liga is entitled to their royalties on these games. However, right. So if I'm a if I'm a bar right. and I want to show this to my patrons, right. I have to pay for that. You have to pay for it. Right. right. Okay. But what La Liga is doing here is they release their soccer app and they put in the user's app the ability to listen to the audio in the room, and then they're going to listen in the using uh, using the same kind of technology like Shazam to see if the if the sound fingerprint coming out of a TV matches the sound fingerprint from a game. They're also going to use GPS mm-hmm. to see where the phone is and see if that location has a license to show that game. And they didn't let the uh, users know that that was what they were doing, was essentially operating as spies right. for on their behalf. La Liga, on behalf of La Liga. <laughs> uh, now, they claim that the fingerprinting technology that they're using uh, only uses a little tiny bit of the audio information and that it's impossible for them to record human voices or human conversations. Yeah, they're probably not doing that. That's right. I find that, I still find that hard that is not to believe. The point. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's <laughs> right. you know, it's like I broke into your house, but all I did was rearrange the furniture. Right, like, and cleaned you, up. You yeah. still broke into my house. Exactly. Right? It's still breaking and entering. <laughs> right, right. Now I'm guessing that it was probably, as always, buried somewhere deep in the EULA that they had permission to do this, and they'll probably say that when you initially fired up the app, you gave us access to the microphone. Right. But uh, I think it's... And your GPS server. And your GPS. GPS system, rather. So uh, this is what GDPR was was supposed to be for, right? Right, and this is a GDPR fine, I think, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I say good for GDPR in this case. Yeah, I would agree. This is a a win for privacy. Yeah. The, the, The other sort of thing that troubles me about this is that this is going to be fuel to the fire that our phones are listening in on us. Right, right, yeah. Because we've made the point over and over again that, in general, they're not. But here's a case where... They are. They are. Right, they're <laughs> absolutely listening in. Yeah, and that's uh, that's bad. I mean, that that's what the capability of these things is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, they always had the capability to be listening to you. Right, and here's a case where somebody actually did it. Right. Mm. All right, well, it's troubling. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers... 
Banta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 